Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. What can designers learn from Motown music? You know, that unmistakable sound of young America? It might seem like an unlikely or perhaps alternative mashup of industries, but it's no secret that Hitsville had repeatable success in creating some of America's top charting songs. Perhaps I'm biased because I'm a Detroiter, though 191 number one hit songs seems to say I'm not. We're going to present the design community with five key learnings from Motown, including the assembly line, quality control, healthy competition, self-expression, and adaptability. Join us as we compare Motown's hit-making process with our design process and explore some of the benefits and limitations that includes. We chat with Alan Rawls, Board of Trustees member of Motown Museum, with a background in architecture and urban planning. Also joining us today is legendary recording artist and funk brother, Dennis Coffey, whose gold record, Scorpio, sold over a million copies. You might have seen him recently playing on Jimmy Fallon with the Roots Band. So maybe for this episode, hop in the car, roll the windows down, and cruise to episode three, People Are Not Cars. I believe the process came through him working on the assembly line at probably the Lincoln Mercury division of Ford Motor Company. We're hearing now from Motown Museum's Board of Trustees member, Alan Rawls. And Henry Ford, when he developed the assembly line, found that if you give one repetitive task to an individual, that can make the production process flow much smoother. And so as he did that, Mr. Gordy experienced that kind of process when he was working there. As most of us know, that can become a very boring process as well. At the same time, though, not only did he understand the assembly line process from observing it, but that's also part of how his musical inspiration for writing songs began before he even started writing for Jackie Wilson. The sounds that you hear around you give you an inspiration for other things that you may want to express outside of the workplace. So if you can imagine what it's like on a factory floor where you hear, you know, chink, 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 zoom, zoom. You know, you hear all the sounds of machinery, that rhythmic pattern. You could imagine someone who's got a creative mind making up or humming tunes or making up lyrics that kind of fit within those beat patterns. And so that was his initial inspiration for going forward with becoming a a songwriter and then ultimately uh, a recording company. So, quick history minute. Before the assembly line was developed by Henry Ford, 
Objects were manufactured start to finish by a single artisan or specialist. Clearly, this took time and effort, and Ford wanted a way to speed up the production rate of his Model T cars. So instead of one person building one car, the process became segmented, where one person was responsible for one part of the production process. This allowed an operator to specialize in a single task by only completing that portion of the process repeatedly. But the assembly line has been a source of inspiration for way more than just the automotive industry. Like Alan Rawls of Motown Museum just mentioned, it was how Barry Gordy was going to run his recording studio, Motown Records. This leads me to my first key learning. The assembly When they bought the house, which is still standing at 2648 West Grand Boulevard, Mr. Gordy said that he pictured stars coming in one door as raw talent and coming out the other as polished stars. And so he wanted a process to develop his talent because he had worked with some of the most talented and popular people in show business. The assembly line for the hit-making factory was made up of multiple sections. Some of the workstations included songwriting, often operated by Lamont Dozier and brothers Brian and Eddie Holland. Producing was another section and was often manned by the likes of Harvey Fuqua and Norman Whitfield, just to name a few. And of course, there were the arrangers like Paul Reiser and David Vandepitt. The Funk Brothers were the musical foundation for Motown, and they were the group that played under all the artists. Then there were some unusual suspects that made up the Hitsville production line, like Miss Maxine Powell, who managed etiquette training for the artists, and Charlie Atkins who managed all of Motown's choreography to the hit songs we know and love. And that doesn't even begin to cover the behind-the-scenes departments like sales, marketing, and legal. Mr. Gordy truly had a unique, multidisciplinary team of individuals, even some you wouldn't expect, to create America's top charting songs. So he was widely exposed to top-rate talent. And he knew that in order to have something that would sustain the artist as well as a company, you need to be able to present yourself. And that meant your image, that meant how you talked, how you walked, what you wore, as well as all the showmanship and the vocal ability that you need to do a compelling performance. That's the foundation of which he decided to employ that assembly line process, because he knew that there were so many facets it took to make a truly successful artist. So he knew that if I just send the Supremes out there in their high school dresses, people who come to a show want to see something glamorous, they want to see something entertainment, they want to see something different. And so that's what show business is all about, and he developed new ways on being able to present that. Just like there are many facets that make a Motown artist, there's tons of facets to our design process. Whether that's engineering, architecture, landscape design, interior design, the list goes on. So go with me for a second. A building project comes down the assembly line conveyor belt where every detail in a given phase is attended to by an expert or specialist in the relevant field of study. It feels next to impossible these days for one person or specialist to be involved in every step of a complex design project. So it's broken down into focused teams like engineering, architecture, landscape design, you get the picture. So some would say we've basically moved away from multidisciplinary specialists who control the entire design process because they have expertise in multiple areas. I mean, 
Alexander Gerard designed everything down to the napkins in La Fonda del Sol. But a lot of our projects have become a lot bigger than a cafe in Manhattan. We're talking crazy complex mixed-use buildings. Plus, architectural education is now more streamlined, so a lot of creatives are focusing on specific nuances of the building process rather than trying to tackle all of them. Hence, you have fields of expertise and more people sitting at the table. And honestly, I think we need to make room for multidisciplinary designers who want to do everything and single disciplinary designers who want to be amazing at one thing. We'll get to more on that later, but back to Motown's assembly line. Even when the songs were done, they had one more department to hit before they could be released quality control. Studio A, Friday at 11 o'clock, I think it was. So there's this one picture that's always shown with a quality control meeting with Mary Wilson of the Supremes saying something. She's standing up and everybody's listening and Diana's sitting off to the side. So there were certain people on the creative side that were always there. Other folks whose names may not be household names but were still very valuable to that process would have been some of the other producers like Harvey Fuqua, who actually is the guy who discovered Marvin Gaye. Mickey Stevenson, who was the A&R director, also a songwriter and a musician. So there were those artistic folks in there, then of course Mr. Gordy, and then the artists whose songs were being pitched, and the writers and the producers, all those folks were there. Something to note here is that Motown artists are required to create five songs a day, so 25 a week, and then only two were selected to move forward in the recording process. So they were very familiar with coming to these quality control meetings on Friday at 11 a.m. and having 23 pieces of their work rejected on a weekly basis. I mean, when's the last time we showed up with 25 design concepts to a meeting? Speaking of meetings, I do think our design tribe gets a gold star for modeling our design charrettes in a very similar way. We welcome new ideas in our quality control meetings, even if they're coming from the interns. However... What I found interesting was a broad range of people who attended these meetings. It wasn't just the artists. Like Alan said, it was everybody. It made me wonder when the last time we asked the firm accountant to weigh in. Or even better, grabbed folks from outside the firm to contribute to our projects. Rumor has it Mr. Gordy went out in the streets of Detroit and played the songs for teenagers. But there's one more piece that I think Motown had that we don't utilize enough. Healthy competition. This episode is brought to you by Kimball. Imagine a space that welcomes the new workday, where ideas are born and innovation comes to life. A place that's always ready for what's next. By looking at things differently and discovering what brings out the best in each of us, Kimball is redefining the workplace and offering fresh perspectives that support the ways people want to work. Achieving growth and enhancing resiliency for organization requires both agility and innovation. That's why Kimball helps customers reimagine the workday for the ever-changing world of work. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the annual Firm Drag Race. You'll be competing against one another for the most creative, most innovative ideas. Everybody start your engines. Competition, healthy competition. May the best ideas win. One of Mr. Gordy's mottos, if you will, that competition breeds champions. Even though the four tops 
They were already a little older and a little bit more polished than some of the other acts because they had been around. They used to open for Billy Eckstein, so they had their stuff together already. But there was a, a healthy competition between them and The Temptations on who was going to stop the show. So even though The Temptations could dance in a more exciting way and their vocal range was much different than the Four Tops, that competition and that cross-fertilization of seeing what the other person can do, what they can bring to the show. There's something about competing that forces you to sharpen your tools and find a way to stand out from the crowd. And while everyone may not thrive on this type of motivation, Motown did. But notice what Alan said about that cross-fertilization. Whether you have the polish of the four tops or the vocal chops of the temptations, you clearly learn something from the opposing competitor. So in the music, the goal, of course, is what's going to get me a number one hit? Is it a great instrumental track? Is it a great song melody? And who's the right singer to sing this song? So all of those primary elements are all floating around at one time. So along comes a Norman Whitfield, who really likes working with The Temptations, and he can't really wedge in there. The Smokey's creating hit after hit after hit for them. So when, when Norman Whitfield gets his chance, his competition says, okay, I've got to come up with something that's going to surpass whatever Smokey did and give them a bigger hit. And so it helps them develop their creative juices so that they first of all come up with a great concept, a great song, but then inspire the musicians to do something different or beyond what they've done before to make the song better. One of the best outcomes of this healthy competition was an immensely popular hit song with a bass line you can't miss. Smokey wanted to follow up to Mary Wells' My Guy and decided to come up with My Girl for The Temptations, and it became their signature song and first number one hit. But while Mr. Gordy's motto, Competition Breeds Champions, can definitely ring true, the back half of that statement he found was, but competition can't get in the way of the love. Without the love, the egos and jealousy becomes powerful enough to destroy companies. So at Motown, artists definitely competed with each other, but at the same time, they actually wrote hit songs for one another, too. It made me curious if the design industry could harness such a balance. And I think that comes from the principals or the folks who run the studios and design firms. If they foster that kind of collaboration and creativity with a little dose of competition in there to keep things exciting and create a little disruption at the same time, then I think that's the best thing. But you got to have people who nurture an environment like that, allow it to go off the rails a little bit, but know how to get it back on. So often in studio culture, we break into silos like healthcare, retail, corporate, etc. Like we mentioned before, it's really efficient to do so. But what would it look like if we used competition to cross-pollinate between disciplines and vertical markets for the betterment of the team and learning at large, even if that's not necessarily a client-facing team? And then, what happens if in this process, you find something else you love and want to pursue? Because after all, people are not cars. People are not cars. Everybody's different. People are not cars. After years of managing artists and facilitating their transformation on the Motown assembly line, years of number one albums and chart topping hits, Mr. Gordy made the profound statement You can have the greatest assembly line in the world, but people are not cars. And eventually, they're going to express themselves outside the system. These polished and produced Motown artists and songwriters began to venture out into new creative themes and develop their own unique sounds. 
I guess the first thing, and I guess this is universally, whether you're a recording star or an architect or any writer, any form of creative expression, and maybe it's even in scientific fields, is that you get into it initially for your passion, whatever that might be. And then as you develop your craft, you want to extend it further. There's a bit of concern for some of the folks who are plugging away, doing the same work over and over again. How do you stay excited about your job when you want to be doing a thousand different things? Emily Wapnick discusses this in her TEDx talk about multi-potentialites, or the people who have a range of interests and pursuits over the course of their career, as opposed to just following their one true calling. What happens when the healthcare design specialist decides one day that they want to instead create boutique hotels because hospitality is bleeding into everything these days? They probably got inspired from one of those studio competitions the firm did where you were forced to work with folks outside of your market silo. So how can our seemingly linear, specialized way of working be inclusive for creatives who want to do more than just one task, who want to be like one of the dying breeds of multidisciplinary designers? Even if you're working within a system, you see that you have the ability to go further. And sometimes that opportunity is given to you, and sometimes it's stifled. And then sometimes it has to fight to break through. So I think that's what Mr. Gordy might have been trying to capsulize in that statement, cars are not people. The notion that you can create an assembly line where every product comes out identical, okay? That doesn't happen with humans. All of us are unique individuals. One of the unique individuals who took the risk to pursue more than just being a session player for Motown was legendary funk brother Dennis Coffey. I think for one year, I was probably in three songs in the top ten in Billboard for a year straight of all the sessions that I was doing. So here I am just going about my business, and I'd already played on a lot of gold records anyways. And Jamerson called me, the bass player, and introduced me to Hank Cosby. And Hank says, well, we're putting together this producer's workshop to give the producers a little more time to experiment. So it's going to be above a Golden World studio, so we want to hire you to be in that band four nights a week. And so I said, well, okay. So it was another gig. So I was in that thing for a couple of months. Every Thursday night we'd be there and people would be working out tunes. And then Norman Whitfield came in, the producer, and he had a chart on a song called Cloud Nine he wanted to do in The Temptations. So I looked at the chart, and I had this pedal called a wah-wah pedal. So I took it out, and I put it on the front of that, and Norman says, that's it. So two weeks later, I was at Motown playing with The Temptations, and then it just took off from there. So it took Dennis no time at all to establish himself as an incredibly sought-after musician. By the way, that wah-wah pedal which has been used by the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and Slash, helped win Motown's first-ever Grammy Award for the song Cloud Nine. You can imagine that immediately after, Motown wanted him as an official funk brother. If you're one of those multi-potentialite folks we discussed earlier who are dying to incorporate your extracurricular skills on the job, Wapnick suggests pitching some initiatives that will utilize these skills to help the company grow or run more smoothly, like bringing a wah-wah pedal to the recording session. So our job when we came in, we'd come in at 10 o'clock in the morning, we'd look and there'd be a chart in front of us of a song we never saw before. So our job was to read that chart correctly so the arranger's happy, and then the producer would be there to tweak it or count it off, but that's how it worked. And if you had a producer that wanted you to add some stuff to it, some fills, or maybe do a little solo or something, you could do that. But the basic structure is you had to play the arrangement correctly. 
I could see the keyboard parts. I could double the bass parts and stuff okay. like that. And then if they wanted a guitar figure, they'd put it in there. But all the guitar chords, piano chords, all that stuff was written. So we had all that, and that's what we worked with. Dennis is a jazz guy. Jazz musicians are a special breed of people. I know because I'm married to one. They're trained to play the music in front of them, but also to improvise with a highly complex solo at the drop of a hat. Sometimes what's in front of them is two notes. That bum, banana, banana at the beginning of My Girl is literally played by one of the greatest bass players of all time, James Jamerson. You could be the next Zaha Hadid, but at some point you could be the one saddled with redline pickups at the end of a project instead of the summer intern. And that's okay. The best jazz musicians know when to sacrifice their solo moment and play a way less glamorous part for the betterment of the piece and the team. I don't think the teamwork part of the Funk Brothers is given enough credit. It standardized the sound, and the standard sound was us, the Funk Brothers. That was the rhythm section. It was the same 11 guys all the time. You had two drummers, Uriel and Pistol. You had Jack Ashford on uh, tambourine and Bongo Eddie on congas. You had Earl Van Dyke on keyboards, and you had Jack Brokenshaw on vibes, and you had Johnny Griffith on keyboards, and uh, you had Jamerson on bass, and the guitars were usually me and Joe Messina and Robert White and Eddie Willis. So you had 11 and all, all different guys, and we all worked together. Like the guitar section, we'd look at the arrangements and say, well, what part do you want? Oh, well, I'll do this part. Okay, well, I'll do this part. But what happened is when you get to Funk Brothers and they're doing double sessions every day, every week, that's how you get a tight rhythm section. I can't help but admire this chemistry that the Funk Brothers fostered in their years of playing together, being on the same team. It formed the entire foundation of the Motown sound. What if we put in the time to know our teammates so well that as soon as we get the project brief, we know who's best suited for what task? When we step back through the doors of our workplaces again, how is collaboration going to evolve post-pandemic? How can we best support the teams of creatives who make up the project assembly line, the ones who are really happy being an expert in their field of study, and the ones who want to be Renaissance people? We already know millennials want their job to be fulfilling, to have purpose. And for some, their purpose is to use a wide range of skill sets because they're interested in that many things. While there are certainly ways that the insatiably curious multi-potentialites can stay within a company, like shifting their role or doing a side hustle you're passionate about, Wapnick says that sometimes it does require finding a better job fit or striking out on your own. Dennis Coffey did just that by coming out with his instrumental single, Scorpio, that peaked in the U.S. at number nine on the Billboard Hot Soul Singles chart and number six on the Billboard Hot 100. Here's what I did. We could talk about Scorpio. So what I did, I sat in my basement in Farmington Hills, and I had a sound-on-sound sound recorder, and I just started writing songs. And I said, well, let's do this guitar band concept of having the guitars play horn parts. You know, there's like nine guitars playing a melody of Scorpio. So I wrote these ten songs, and my partner at the time was Mike Theodore. We still do stuff together. So anyways, I, I played him the songs and said, here's what I'm doing. And he says, you know what, I like that. He says, let me uh, talk to Clarence Avon. And he gave us a deal. So uh, I'd also given a demo to Hank Cosby of a song I called It's Your Thing that we, we were going to put out to see if Motown was interested. So within a month, I had a deal locked up. Mike got me to deal with Clarence Avon. He signed me up right away. So then Hank Cosby comes and said, well, Barry heard that one song. He wants to sign you up. I said, it's too late. I'm already signed. And then there's times that everybody wants you because you're just that talented. But Dennis truly is a great example of someone who crushed working in a team setting at Motown and pursued his other interests by having an iconic career of his own. 
He went on to write songs, produce, arrange, and perform his own music, which, if you haven't heard him perform, do yourself a favor, go to Northern Lights Lounge and hear him. It makes for a fantastic date night. Dennis sums up his time at Motown by saying, you have to understand that it's a creative process in which the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts. Oh, how true that is. I wonder, though, if he would have felt that he could strike out on his own without the experience of being on the Motown assembly line. Is there value in spending some of your career doing perhaps the less glamorous parts of the project over and over again so that you understand the scale of what you're creating? Our goal as designers should be to pursue excellence no matter what part you're doing. It really does pay off. The, the whole idea is I've always been in pursuit of uh, excellence. I was on a Jimmy Fallon show with the Roots Band not yes. too long ago. Yeah. You know, wow. I, yeah, so I played with Les Paul. I took his place with his trio and playing on his birthday after he passed away. So that's what I've always done is just try and uh, practice. I'm still practicing all the time trying to get better. And then if you do that, then your chance will come. But you better be ready because you're not going to get a lot of chances. So when you're ready, you better be ready. That's worked for me. So far, we understand that our creative process, being inspired by the assembly line, is efficient and helps to create sustainable success, both for Motown and the design industry. Competition could be put to good use by spurring one another on to create more excellent work, but must be carefully managed so that egos don't get in the way. And while the production line style process seems needed for designers to grow and gain expertise, it can limit those who want to reach beyond managing just one part of the process and excel in more than one area of the project. There's one more takeaway we're going to cover in this episode, and it features Motown's pivot during the civil rights movement. By the early 70s, Motown had gone through major shifts with the type of music it was producing, the vision of the company, and the brand as a whole from its humble beginnings. The type of songs the company was originally producing were about love, friendships, and made you want to dance in the streets. Then there became a demand for psychedelic, more funk-inspired sounds, hence Dennis Coffey, and then there was a shift to protest songs and reflecting on what was happening politically at the time with the Vietnam War and race riots. You got to remember that the artists themselves were also very involved in the civil rights movement. So there was always that awareness with them. When you think about how the music may have evolved, Stevie Wonder was probably the earliest one of the, quote, superstars that got into it. I mean, he sang a really inspirational rendition of Blown in the Wind, uh, Bob Dylan's song in the mid-60s, way before What's Going On or even some of the stuff that Stevie wrote like living for the city. The artists, they're giving you their feedback of what they're seeing, and then they're giving it back to you and say, okay, I, I see how people are being treated. I see how conditions are. I see things I don't like. I see things I do like. Mm -hmm. And I want to express them back to you. I'm, it's a conversation. Initially, Mr. Gordy did not want to give up the safe, don't rock the boat sound of young America that Motown was known for. It must have been hard to know whether to stay with the more corporate sound that everyone loves and is not controversial, or to be the loudest bell ringing for justice. Marvin Gaye pushed for justice. A little backstory on one of the coolest songs of all time, What's Going On. When the Ain't No Mountain High Enough singer came to Gordy with his new single, it was shot down. It just 
didn't fit with the reputation of the company and the vision Mr. Gordy had for it. But Marvin pushed and said that it's exactly what Gordy had taught him to do all along, to write about what you see. In 1971, it was finally released, and it was a major success, like number four on Rolling Stone's list of the top 500 greatest songs of all time. So sometimes when you create new music, people want to hear something new and exciting, but they may not even know that they want to hear about the Vietnam War. But when they hear about it, it wakes something up inside them. So it can be a two-way street. The musician can be inspired by what's happening in the world, but the musician can inspire the listener from what they see that maybe a projection beyond what's happening in the world and what else could be done. What an amazing gift to inspire someone before they even know what they want to hear. The power of music to speak to the soul and awaken something inside of our hearts is magic. Design has the power to do exactly the same thing. Designers are constantly looking for ways that we can solve problems before some even realize there's an issue. We lead with empathy and have the power to create spaces that heal, excite, restore, and include everyone. And sometimes that requires changing for what's right, even when it feels like a risky move. So we are going through tremendous new things that we never thought we'd have to experience before. Climate change is something that's going to affect all of us, whether we like it or not. The pandemic has changed how work gets done. And that's going to be reflected in the design or redesign of the built environment. All of those kinds of things are input factors that design professionals have to absorb and respond to as they go forward in doing their design work in the future. We've got these new challenges that we're just starting to get our heads around. Like, how many people actually Zoomed a year ago? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, the challenges keep coming. We have to be the, the creative people who can uh, respond to them. We have a rare opportunity to respond to the challenges we see in the world. As designers, we have the power to help shape what we want to see in our workplace, our communities, all the way to a global scale. Times are changing. They did for Motown and they are for us. But as we step forward, it makes sense to look at the way we've always done things and ask ourselves if it's still working. Would inviting unlikely suspects to our quality control meetings offer unique perspectives that help drive success? Can incorporating healthy competition offer an interesting way to diversify and cross-pollinate our teams? Does our efficient assembly line-inspired process make space for those that want to excel in their specialization and for those who want to thrive in hundreds of specialties like Dennis did? Maybe we take a few lessons from Motown's playbook and remember that in the end, you can have the greatest assembly line in the world, but people are not cars and they are always going to express themselves outside the system. podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Alan Rawls and Dennis Coffey for chatting with us today. Also, thank you to Kimball for being our show sponsor. For more information, check out our show notes and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.